Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles, 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatlemaniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at BC the Beatles, Because the Beatles everywhere. And we'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. Giving us a review right now would enter you in our contest to win the coveted Egypt Station Metro card. So mm. do the review. Let us know that you've done it by DMing us, emailing us, just showing that it's been done and then in our next episode we will announce the winner and send it out so excited but for today we're going to forego all of our news and our history and everything and just concentrate on the book because it's the first episode of the beatles book club hooray Yay! so exciting i've been wanting to do this forever so this is pretty pretty cool we've got such a great book to kick this off yeah this book was incredible it was called love me do the beatles progress by michael braun a little bit about Michael Braun. He was a very enigmatic and eclectic American author. He allegedly graduated Harvard in 1958. There's a lot of mystery about his past. So and... much mystery. He's such a fascinating character. Yeah, he really is. He's an interesting study all on his own. Yeah. So how he got to the point of writing this book, after his graduation, he traveled the world as a cabin boy, and he ended up in the UK as an assistant to Stanley Kubrick, who was in London to make the films Lolita and Dr. Strangelove. So surreal. Really? What luck does he have? <laughs> right? And then while he was there, he started working as a journalist for the Sunday Times and the Observer, which at the time were the nation's top newspapers. In this capacity, he spent a couple of months following this new sensational band called The Beatles on their first British tour and overseas to his homeland of America. And it's said that he is the inspiration for paperback writer. This is total speculation, but I think he's probably the first journalist besides maybe Bill Harry to like really piggyback on them and really follow them this closely. I think so, because somebody like Ivor Davis, he started with the, the American tour, but this guy was there before the American tour. Yeah. So to those of us on this side of the pond, it's before the Beatles were big for us, mm -hmm. which is, is interesting because I think... Until you really get into studying Beatles history, like the Beatles happened in 1964. But if you look at it from this point of view, the Beatles were already really happening in 1963 and before that. I always think of 63 as like British Beatlemania and then 64 as American Beatlemania. And they actually have two very different characters, as you see in the book. Sometimes the British Beatles fans, even in 63, at the height of British Beatlemania, have a reputation for being more composed and more sort of calmly passionate about the Beatles, which is not the case whatsoever, based on what Michael Braun's writing here, which is super interesting. Just a few more things about Michael Braun. After this book was published, he remained a correspondent during the swinging London era, and eventually he started working for Rowan Polanski, of all people. Um, he was with Polanski so when he found out that Sharon Tate was murdered. Uh, in the 70s, he branched out. He became just a traveling itinerant writer covering stories from war to entertainment. He went to Cuba, to Russia, to South Africa, to the States, to Europe. He was everywhere. Um, by the end of the 70s, he relocated to Los Angeles. And the rest of his life is kind of shrouded in mystery. A lot of accounts say that he was he was homeless, but was still kind of hobnobbing with the elite at the same time. 
He died relatively young and around 60 years old in 1997, actually on the first day of rehearsals for a new project he was producing, Titanic the Musical on Broadway. Did that ever happen? Because I would go see that today. Titanic the Musical? Yeah, that happened, right? Oh, yeah, there's a, yeah. It's, it's okay. It's okay. I was gonna say listeners I don't know if you know this about Erica fun fact but Erica loves theater so I do love theater she's the guru I do I I don't love Titanic the musical but I love theater so we are going to get back to the book that he wrote about the Beatles which is fascinating Um, amazing it was originally published in 1964 when as we said he traveled with the Beatles as a journalist for the Sunday Times Um, he was with them between the fall of 1963 up till their American debut in February 1964 so at the time Beatlemania had reached its height in the UK but they still kind of thought it was a passing fad. People didn't really know what it was they were looking at. I think there was still some um, some adults who were yet to catch on to what a beetle was and how to deal with this influx of teenagers basically ruling what it was that they have to write and talk about. And at the time, there was a lot of effort to sanitize who the Beatles were, to hide some of their less desirable characteristics. A lot of this was, you know, the part of Brian Epstein trying to make them a more palatable group because they were, they had a lot of rough edges before Brian started working with them. Right. Definitely Brian and I would say Derek Taylor too, trying to create this very crafted press image around them. But, you know, I think one of the best things about this book is that it's sort of before, you know, because starting in 64, really to today, it's sort of an effort to sanitize the group and make them really polished, you know, like deified rock icons. When this book is really, there was really nothing to lose. They didn't really know when Beatlemania was going to end or the bubble was going to burst. So Braun really had no agenda. He sort of went into this and was like, I'm just going to tell a story about who these guys are. So you do get a lot of the color and a lot of the kind of off-color comments and the the realness behind the Beatles' people that you don't get in many other accounts. Even today, even Paul and Ringo today, when they talk about the Beatles, it's very, very cleaned up and not always super accurate. So that's, I think, the real value in this text. Yeah, and it could only have really been done at this time because America has a much more puritanical view of what is proper, what is right. Mm -hmm. And I think in in England, they could probably get by with this a little bit more, the off-color jokes. Drinking culture is very different. But if this version of the Beatles was presented to America in February 1964, the records would have started being burned then. Yeah, some of the comments that... Particularly John, I think, had a bunch of comments, as John would, really. Yes. Um, But I think they all have their moments in here. Maybe not Ringo so much. Ringo was kind of, takes a backseat a little bit in the book, but he probably comes across the best, I would say. But they all sort of have their moments where it's like, oh, that's kind of like jerky. (laughs) Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what we thought about the portrayal of each of the Beatles um, in this narrative. What did you think about how they were portrayed? I liked, again, like how they were sort of fleshed out as people. I My favorite chapter was, I believe it was the York chapter. It might be the second or third. It's right at the beginning of the book. You know, that really sucks you in because that chapter particularly is set up as just literally Michael Braun sitting in a room with the Beatles as they're having a conversation. And it's almost word for word what that conversation is. And you really get to see them interact just as people and as friends and how their relationship was with each other when nobody else was around and they're just sitting in a hotel room just smoking and like drinking and just talking like boys that was sort of my 
take away from that whole conversation was just, while they do sound their age, they do say things that boys would say. You know, they're talking about the girls in the audience. They're talking about the traveling. They're talking about their favorite music. You know, it's just sort of like kids in their early 20s, you know, what they're talking about, which is really refreshing because it's a very unexalted Later on, you read about the Beatles, every time they're treated as these beings. And here it's like, no, they were 20-something-year-old guys who just wanted to talk about what that age group really talks about. Let's talk about each Beatle in particular. So Paul is really interesting. I don't know that he comes off that well. Paul comes (laughs) off terribly. He is selfish. Even Jane Asher is quoted as saying... Oh my gosh, the Jane Asher quote. He's so... What did, she, what did she say? She said something about it. He's selfish. It's his biggest fault. He can't see that my feelings for him are real and that the fans are fantasy. That's so funny because, you know, if you consider they didn't break up really until like 68. Yeah. You know, so this is five years more of this. And we know from other accounts they had a very rocky relationship. It's, it's funny that she would say that too, especially to a writer at that point. There was another antidote where she and I think it was her brother Peter and Paul were talking one night and Peter and Jane started talking about something that was off the subject of what Paul was interested in. So he abruptly gets up and said, well, I've had a very tiring day making lots of people happy. I'm going to bed and walks off. <laughs> Cla- classic Paul, maybe. I mean, it's, it's classic Paul at his most hilarious. immature. Um, he does ask a Catholic priest about how much he makes uh, the financial aspects of Catholicism. To the point that in the story, the priest gave him a $10 bill to show him how little he cared about money. One of Braun's observations um, early on in the book, I believe it was during like a press conference. And he, again, mentions how charming Paul is and how Paul turns it on. Um, I think there's a moment where Paul's having a conversation with a friend and then is approached by a journalist. And Paul immediately just like flips the switch and becomes Paul the Beatle and uh, turns it on, which is something that Paul has always done. Well, none of the things that he did are bad it's not like he they're portraying him as a bad person i feel like to the beatles fan in 1964 if they had read this they would have been the most disappointed why do you say that i think it's the most about face from his personality that we see in the media because he's very sweet and singing till there was you with his eyes you know pointed up to the rafters and looking so angelic but you see some of the calculation behind that which is, is fine, but because he did such a good job of portraying that image, and I think that is a big part of who he is, and it's not all fake, but I feel like if I was 15 and I was reading these things, I would be kind of shocked at how how he was selfish and how he did maybe treat his girlfriend and maybe he was a little bit more money-minded than I would have thought, you know what I mean? So to me, that's the starkest contrast between image Beatles and actual Beatles. I think about conversations we've been having recently about Paul and how complex he is, even though he seemed very simple. And maybe that's the beauty of Paul and the the image he did work to craft even back then. If you think about it, none of these men were older than 24 years old. Which is insane. Because of the way Brian crafted their image, at least to me when I was younger, they seemed so much older and at the same time kind of ageless. But I would, yeah. would never compare them to like 20-year-old men, boys that I knew and said, oh, well, okay, they were the same age as this guy. Like, there's something different about that persona. So to actually think about them as early 20s, very young men 
it makes them more real, but it, it does for sure strip away some of that early Beatles image. Right. I mean, I'm in my early 30s and I still think of them as older than me. I don't know. Like, I, yeah. mm-hmm. which is why I think I found that conversation so fascinating because it's like, you know, you realize that they were young, you know, and it's, it's really, it is kind of trippy to think about it, <laughs> you yeah. know, because they do seem perpetually older. Mm-hmm. And speaking of seeming older, what did you think about John's portrayal? John, I thought was a lot of John was like classic John, mm-hmm. like some of his quotes. Some of them were quotes that I've sort of seen over the years, but didn't really realize where they came from. I think a lot of Beatles authors, even though this book was out of print for many decades, I think a lot of authors borrowed from this book. So many of the stories, at least for me, as I went on, it's like, I know I've heard this somewhere before. I cannot place it. Yeah, yeah, totally. The one John quote that women should be obscene and not heard. I've read that so many times, but I wasn't really sure where that originated. So it was cool to see it here in print. Which is fun to know because they are actual conversations that were written down verbatim. They weren't some author just making it up. He didn't sanitize them or clean them up at all. No. And one thing I think we should mention about John, especially in the era that we're in now, he was a man of his time. And he did say things that were extremely non-politically correct, at least in our day. He said things about people who were disabled. He said things about people who were gay. He said things about women. And we'll be talking a lot more about John in our John Lennon birthday episode with Jude Sutherland Mm -hmm. Kessler next week. But if you do read the book, and if you did read the book, John was John. Those were jokes to him. I don't think he meant much of anything in a serious way. Yeah, I think John would be maybe what we would refer to today as unfiltered. You know, he sort of just said things that came to mind and didn't really clean them up before he said them. I think they just sort of popped out of his mouth. But he was obviously, you know, a guy who had his opinions and didn't mind sharing them. And I thought this quote was interesting, um, especially later on, what we know about John and his his activism and his, you know, staunch sort of beliefs, especially when he was campaigning, uh, you know, for different causes and different people. Um, But he says in the book, I get spasms of being intellectual. I read a bit about politics, but I don't think I'd vote for anyone. No message from any of those phony politicians is coming through to me, which reminds me of Give Me Some Truth right mm-hmm. off the bat. I don't think John ever changed very much with regard to his political feelings. I think he did that. He acted out on something when he thought it was really important, but he wasn't somebody that was just dependably politically active in a range of causes or whatever. And this is how he was when he was he was 24. I thought it was interesting that during the time of the book was when he was getting ready to to release in his own right. So mm-hmm. the author was being introduced to that side of John. I'm trying to remember how it went in the book, but I know that when the book was released, or when I think when the author was first exposed to the book, he you know had his initial thoughts and reactions. But then um, over the course of the book, uh, some of the different poems and drawings from In His Own Right were published, I believe, in The Observer or The Times or something, some big newspaper in London. And then, of course, John was given a book award and all this kind of stuff. But it was interesting to see how Michael Braun's initial reactions to this kind of book of, like, gibberish. But it's very clever, obviously, gibberish, and and gives insight into John's more playful side, um, his more literary side. And then to see it get all these awards and there's a kind of an insinuation made in the book that's sort of like okay did he get all of these accolades because he's a beetle or because he's actually clever and that's a debate that still is around today mm-hmm. i think this was a great author to be writing this at this time though because he is he's a good writer 
you know, he's got a real skill for crafting a narrative. So he was up to the challenge of looking at John's writings and not judging it as, you know, just dribble because it's from somebody who, you know, is a current pop star or was young. He could see that it was a work of art rather than just something put out by somebody for the purpose of achieving even more fame. Totally. John seemed to be the most authentic Beatle. I think he always was. Uh, he was just very annoyed consistently that he couldn't be as authentic <laughs> he as he wanted salty. to be. He was pretty salty, yeah. Yeah, he <laughs> didn't like it. He didn't care. I would imagine that Brian had a, a big job of keeping him away from the stray fan that, you know, came across him because he he would not temper his personality for, for somebody. No, especially at this point when he is still so new to, like, the fan machine. Yeah, know? and there was a scene in the book, I think, where two girls were in their dressing room interviewing them for something and paul was being the consummate showman and john was kind of in the corner just shooting off snide remarks uh, so for you yeah, yeah so you know john was john george was also i felt he was second to paul in the beetle that came off worst yeah this. george george is a funny one or I definitely have to go more in depth about george just as a person and as a beetle um because he's also i think a lot like Ringo and even Paul, you know, I think John is maybe the one that people sort of peg most close, you know, most closely to actually who he was. But George, you know, he has this reputation as the quiet Beatle and he's got this weird sarcastic sense of humor and he's, you know, kind of beloved. But really, George was pretty cranky, Constantly. <laughs> especially in this book. Yeah. Constantly. There was one he said he kept looking for fans for autographs when he went on the street, but he was both annoyed and pleased when one of them finally recognizes him. He's bored. A photographer asked him if he could look more interested, please. Uh, he has a short fuse when he was impatient. Yeah, he, uh, he was out one night. And he said to a driver, he got frustrated from being out and he said, feed me and take me home. When he was Very out in Paris. to the point, though. Yes. Give him that credit. But he does have his moments, his I don't like your tie kind of moments of jokes that just come out from nowhere and crack up the whole room. He he had a talent for that. That was not just a one-off kind of thing for him. George was very good at the, yeah, the one-liners, the non-sequiturs. Like, he knew where to place a good comment. He didn't seem represented in this book, at least, when he wasn't being a bit snarky and annoyed. I'm not sure why. I'm sure there were plenty of times when he was with them, when he was just as jovial and affable as everybody else. But maybe he was just being quiet because he's the quiet beetle. Maybe, uh. maybe he really was that quiet. I didn't think he was, but I don't. He's he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but... He wasn't. I don't know. Maybe Michael Brown wasn't in the room when George was like being excited and happy. Maybe, but I do wonder if that was if that was an editing issue that he came out that way it could be because it was could so be. it was so consistent but that seems he it seemed more negative than you would have seen george in almost every other representation of him if you looked at him for a long period of time yeah it was definitely more like stark i would say especially when Derek taylor got involved i think that's a huge point in this book because Derek taylor was famous for coloring up and sort of smoothing over everything from teen magazine accounts to other books uh by other sort of contemporary writers about the beatles you know, he would really had a heavy hand in editing that. I can't see Derek Taylor's hand in this. So I think that's probably part of it. Why we see George for maybe closer to actually how he behaved at this point. That's true. And maybe George really hated that because if you listen to the early Beatles Christmas records that Derek Taylor wrote for them, George sounds so sarcastic in almost every word he says. 
He does not <laughs> like having that man put words into his mouth. I don't know what it was. He wasn't no, happy. No. So that was George. Ringo? Ringo was pretty much the same. I mean, the Ringo that we saw on A Hard Day's Night and that we saw in all the press conferences was basically the Ringo that was here. Definitely. I mean, Ringo is a pretty what you see is what you get at this point kind of character and he's astute he's street smart john made a comment he said to be aware with so little education is rather unnerving to someone meaning john who's been to school since he was fucking two onwards so <laughs> and that's i can see how that would annoy john because john sort of fancied himself as this sort of street smart teddy boy but ringo he was a rough kid he, yeah, he came was from actually the dangle. a street smart he, teddy boy yeah he literally had to be street smart to survive he didn't really go to school that long he didn't have that much education so he he was that except i don't think ringo really embraced he didn't lean in you know to himself being the sort of ruffian but john always wanted to be so ringo had something naturally that john always tried to cultivate so funny that's a really interesting point that this book brings up which yeah. you don't really see much in print one thing that i noticed was interesting with the relationship between the beatles is we always sort of think either when they stayed in hotels they were in a suite where they all had their own rooms or they were in separate rooms or whatever but in this book you see john and george rooming together and you see paul and ringo rooming together and I read somewhere else around while I was reading this book which is interesting that it came up in two different texts that they intentionally broke up the Beatles that way in their hotel rooms to separate John and Paul because the connection was so strong and they did not want George and Ringo to be left out and I thought that was really interesting because especially with you know the gift of hindsight where you see in around 67 you know where George and Ringo are basically relegated to sidemen I guess, you know, during the time from 63 to 66, when they stopped touring, there was really that breakdown. But at this point, it was still like, okay, guys, we're a group of pals, you know, we're going to include everybody. And so John and George are going to run together and Paul and Ringo, you guys are together. And that was great. That is interesting, because they needed to be that, that mental unit in order to keep this together. The pressure of what they were doing was so great, that if they had started splitting into factions on their own while in the middle of this pressure cooker, the whole thing would have exploded. They wouldn't have been able to go on. So continuing to foster relationships among all four of them, I'm sure helped them create the united front they needed to, to survive that. Yeah, I think that was totally critical. Let's move on from the Beatles a bit and talk about someone that we do like to talk about here, which is Brian. Oh, we love talking about Brian. Brian's influence. It's kind of the untold story of this book. Yeah, Brian definitely comes into play here. There's a part that I really loved where Michael Braun goes out to dinner with Brian and Brian it suggests this very fancy French restaurant and orders this very nice bottle of wine. And you can just see he obviously always had panache and a taste for the finer things and had these high astute aspirations and spoke with, you know, very royally London accent. And it's just funny. I, whenever I read about Brian, especially in this book or watch an interview with him or whatever, I always think this guy's from Liverpool, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I don't mean that in any sort of disparaging way, because I think Liverpool people are amazing and they're, and they're warm and they're funny and they're generous. 
Um, but Brian, you could see he, how he totally crafted his image, um, which is something that, you know, Michael Braun talks about in this book. Brian's quote, one of the quotes he said was, I knew they would be bigger than Elvis. I knew they would be the biggest theatrical attraction in the world. So Brian, who had had theater training for a limited time, he and he was he loved the theater. He used that training to fashion his own image, and then he further used it to fashion their image. And I think that a lot of the the push and pull between the relationships in this book is the Beatles, these 22, 23, 24-year-old kids fighting against this veneer that's been put on them, this theatrical image that Brian had given them, which was absolutely necessary for them to move forward and to be the sensation that they were. But they were also just, you know, young adults who would want to talk about girls and want to hang out and have a good time and, you know, maybe not wear suits all the time and not look squeaky clean. So it was, I think it was something that graded on them and may have contributed to how we see some of their less desirable qualities as they sit around their hotel room talking to each other. Yeah, that's a great point because you see also when they're in their hotel room hanging out, Brian's not with them. Brian's the grown up. Brian's off doing grown up things. And, you know, as far as his sort of vision for them and his styling of them and their image, it's really important to note. And uh, we just released our Brian episode a couple weeks ago. And, you know, I think sometimes I am going to sort of correction corner myself here in the middle of this book club episode. You know, there's this idea that Brian really came to them and said, boys, you're going to be in suits. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to stop spitting on stage. You're going to stop swearing on stage. But I think what Brian did in his genius lie, you know, lay in the fact that he came to them and said, oh, you know what? I think it would be great if you put on matching suits. What do you think about that? And sort of left it up to them. But I do feel that Brian said it in a way that a parent would say to a child, like, don't you think it'd be nice if you cleaned up your room? You know, wouldn't Mm -hmm. that make you feel better if your toys were in the toy box? You know, it sort of didn't really leave it open for debate, but made them think they were in control. Um, And you sort of see that here in the book, too, with the way he communicates with them, um, which is really smart. And it doesn't come across as condescending or patronizing. It's sort of him knowing how to communicate with them on a really effective level. And he keeps it together. And please go back and listen to our Brian episode if you want. (sighs) Yes, please, please. Hear more about Brian. But he really he really was the glue that held them together. Because in a way, he tried to make them adults. He tried to make them much more adult in in the image of an adult that Brian had. And I don't think that they could have kept that up without Brian's constant guidance. You know, it was his image that he was trying to get them to mold into. And it doesn't mean that the pressure didn't wear on him though. It was hard. You know, almost every time you see Brian, you can you can feel the stress coming off of him in this book. Yeah. He's nervous about something or he's, you know, being solicited for some odd merchandise offer somewhere else or, you know, even even one one remark that he said, did you see that story in The New Yorker? I thought it was very good, except for that part where they called me round faced. I thought that was so cute. (laughs) I love that little (laughs) comment. I so going back for a second to the merch. Am I remember, did I read this right, that somebody gave him an actual, like, beetle? Yeah. And they wanted to, okay. Yeah, like a, like a like, jeweled dead scarab sort of thing. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, that's, that's messed up. So gross. And I think he said, <laughs> yeah. you know, interesting idea, but I don't, I don't think we should be marketing actual beetles. That's Just... really sweet, Brian, but you can actually say this is a terrible idea. <laughs> his his tact <laughs> was admirable, but gross. Yes, exactly. Absolutely gross. 
the one quote from Brian, and I was just like, oh, my heart, my heart. Um, you know, he was talking about the the pressure and uh, especially live shows and the tour dates. And he said, you know, they didn't know, meaning the Beatles didn't know, but I cried tonight. I really did. They never, uh, you know, they never noticed, but I cried. And I was like, oh, Brian, you're going to make me cry. That is so sad. Stop. It's just so touching. It's like he really... He really cared, you know, he cared deeply about this. And I think for somebody like Brian, again, listen to our Brian episode if you want to uh, hear more in depth about this. But for somebody who was very disjointed his whole life, he was schlepped from school to school. He never really found out how to land himself. And to finally have this thing to invest himself in and really kind of ground him. It's it's amazing. And the, that quote... But imagine the pressure on him, though, because he was so super successful, incredibly fast, but he had absolutely no model for how to do this. So he was just going by instinct and hoping it all worked out. The stress of that must have been outstanding. No doubt about that. No doubt. And he was a sensitive guy, you know, and he loved polka dots. He did. He wore a lot of polka dots. He had great fashion sense. He did. He was so handsome. Okay, moving on, because this is not our second Brian episode. We will will have one, but not today. (laughs) Another character in this story was collectively the fans and the people who were controlling the fans. And it was interesting because he not only described those in the context of the concerts and the hotels and the guards and, and, you know, everything that went into getting the Beatles from one place to another and making sure that they got off that stage alive. But he also interspersed various third-party contemporary accounts. So whether it was fan letters to individual Beatles or it was uh, newspaper articles, or in some cases it was musical interpretation of some of their pop songs, he gave a real flavor of what people were experiencing side by side to the Beatles. And that's really important because the fans are a huge part of the Beatles story. And in 1963, there was not this cohesive view of this is Beatlemania like there was when you think about February 1964. You know, people were not sure. People were trying out different ways of engaging with them. And he kind of shows every kind of angle that was happening, you know, psychologists trying to um, talk about the parallels between girls screaming and orgasms. They couldn't understand where it was coming from. So they were doing their best to find some reason why people would be screaming like that. There's a, one line in the book, um, and it's actually pointed out to us by our listener, pal of mine, um, and Beatles book club member, Ashley, who Hi, tweeted Ashley. at us. Um, Hi, Ashley. Uh yeah, I totally forgot about this line, but it's bonkers. They, meaning the the female fans, are also subconsciously preparing for motherhood. Their frenzied screams are a rehearsal for that moment. Even the jelly babies. Oh are yeah, that was so weird. It was oh, that stretch was way too far. <laughs> like what even? What even? First of all, I mean, there's so many problems with this. But first of all, that indicates it was only the girls screaming. Uh, there were boys in the audience too. Okay. The sexism is off the fucking charts here. Ridiculous sexism that all of these 13, 14 year old girls were subconsciously, unconsciously thinking about motherhood, that somehow Jelly Babies, the name of a candy, was related to birthing an actual child. Like they're reading way too much into this. Like I don't even know where to start, like how they would make that connection. Um, it makes me feel a lot better about some of my own writing. Cause I'm like, well, at least I'm not that far-fetched in my conclusions. 
I think there was a combination of not knowing what the what to do with the Beatles, but feeling like they had to say something because they were the leading voice in whatever their field was at the time. And I'm sure there were, you know, concerned adults who were going to psychologists and asking the question, you know, what is this? Why are my children behaving this way? Because I've never seen it before. They're doing their best to give an answer to something that they probably shouldn't be talking about. <laughs> At least not in that I guess way. So. I don't. I, I don't know. So. I mean, I think that the uh, that that did not win out as popular opinion as to why Beatlemania happened, but noted, it's there. I am speculating this, and I'm getting this from pop culture, but I do feel like the early '60s may have been a time when psychology was becoming more prominent plus this is entirely new teenage behavior you saw a fandom with cliff richard and elvis presley certainly and and that kind of act but this is something way off the charts and as far as the actual people who were actually experiencing it there were some interesting accounts about what 1963 beatlemania was like there was one conversation that he recounted i thought it was really interesting because there was a girl who was saying, I screamed the loudest when Paul and George shook their heads. I've never seen anything so fab in my life. When they talk, it makes me want to faint. And the second girl was like, I don't know. I guess I like them, but really Cliff's better. Referring to Cliff Richards. You know, maybe that gives you the impression that everybody saw the same thing, but it wasn't this wall of screaming. It wasn't this total consensus that they were the most amazing thing on earth. Yeah. You hear accounts and, you know, Candy Leonard was on an episode a few uh, weeks ago talking about her book, Beatleness, which studies the fan reaction in the first generation. And some of the people in her book talk about, I went to the show and I screamed because that's what my friends were doing. That's what we did. It wasn't so much the Beatles themselves, although I'm sure that played a part of it, but it was just sort of what you did. On one part, it's fun. It's fun to do that, to let go, to scream. But, you know, maybe... There were other reasons other than they were in some kind of hysteria. People were going crazy. You know, there are actually right. some more realistic reasons why people did that. It's all interesting to see how textbook Beatlemania kind of came about. And this, right. this book tracks that. Um, it also tracks not only just the psychiatrists who are writing about the womb, but, you know, the, it tracks the adult reactions, which are very interesting because I think lots and lots of people in the first part of Beatlemania and British Beatlemania were really taken by surprise if the Beatles were staying at their hotel or if the Beatles were performing at their venue. The number of adults who were wearing Beatle wigs at some point or another during the promotion was both odd and notable. I think it came up like seven or eight different times in the book. Yeah. Every time they talked about the hair, I want to scream. And you know, we think it's overkill now. And it, obviously it's laughable these days that they talked about how long the Beatles hair was and, you know, all the hair jokes and that kind of thing. But literally, I before we started recording, I was just flipping through the book again. And every page I flipped to, it says something about the hair. And I was like, just calm down. I cannot read about the hair one more time. <laughs> it was crazy. I mean, I realized that men did not have longer hair. Their hair wasn't even that long. It really wasn't. I mean, it wasn't obviously a military crew cut, you know, 50 style, but it, it, I don't know. It just, it was so sensationalized to the point of like, okay, we get it, move on. Like write about something else, guys. 
And no wonder John was pissed. I mean, the number of times that he had to talk about shampoo or dandruff or its haircut. God, if I was John, I'd be freaking out. Like, he, he held himself together pretty, pretty well if that's what they wanted to talk to him about all the time. Yeah. But, I mean, it's kind of ingenious, too, if you think about it, because the hair gives the adult something to focus on while, you know, the Beatles are off making music for the teenagers. But, you know, and it certainly worked if that was um, maybe even subconsciously what they were gunning for at this point. The obsessive quality was certainly told in this book through the story of the obsession with the hair. At all levels. So crazy. That story at the embassy where, you know, a very elegant woman pulls out a pair of, of scissors at an embassy ball and clips some of Ringo's hair. That's known. But to me, when I heard that story finally came up, which was at the end of the book, after these constant, constant references to the hair, I couldn't believe Ringo didn't just punch her. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's, right? it's just, it stressed me out while I was reading it to think about so, the hair so much. And that story too, it was interesting to read it in a contemporary account too, because that is one of those things of legend that you always hear about is this woman clipping a piece of Ringo's hair, but to read it in, in sort of real time, was, yeah, that was just absolutely bonkers. One of the last things about the book itself that I want to bring up is something we talked about a little bit, but the story of this period of the Beatles' life as told by Michael Braun was one of extreme pressure and claustrophobia. And that was something that got to me in the beginning and it stayed with me through the end of the book and especially during the American tour when for the first time I realized that they were doing all of these things in the dead of winter in New York City. So not only was it horrible miserable, and crowded and cramped, it was freezing. It was so cold that they weren't sure if they were going to be able to get to Washington, D.C. for their Coliseum show after the Ed Sullivan appearance. It took such a toll on everybody involved. And it was an interesting character study to actually see how each person was handling it. You know, no one really knew what the recipe for success was. As we mentioned before, you know, Brian was basically doing things on instinct and people were following his lead. So nobody would actually really know how much toll was going to be taken on the Beatles, on their road crew, on their publicity crew. One thing that continued to come up was that Brian Somerville, their, their press agent at the, at the time, he had a terrible time. Thunderville. God, he hated his job and his job hated him. I felt so bad for that man. <laughs> yeah, he was definitely in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, he did not have an enjoyable time. I did like his little salty comments, though, off to the side. Like, he would have these really funny, like, like just, like, grumbles that he was saying to Michael Braun. I bet he did. I bet he went over to Michael Braun all the time, and he was just like, oh, my God. Like, because he was the impartial observer who probably saw the same thing he saw um, and right. was was so frustrated. And he was so frustrated. Ugh, poor man. Um, <laughs> and the Beatles themselves were also frustrated. I think John, more than anybody, was really on the verge of exploding. I think he, because he was so authentic and because he hated the artifice, the the, the obsessiveness of the fans got to him. And I think it really angered him that the music was not being heard. Well, for the Beatles, I think the music was always first priority. We can speculate all day long, but I don't I don't think they ever anticipated this type of reaction. I mean, they got it a little bit to Cavern Club, but I think they definitely expected it, especially American audiences where a lot of their musical heroes came from. 
they'd expect it to be heard at the very least. At one point, John said, if anybody tells us we were good tonight, I'll spit in their faces. We were awful. And it's because, <laughs> you know, not only was everybody giving them lift service, but nobody could hear them. They couldn't hear themselves. I think part of the reason even that John would do crazy things for reactions, like doing a Nazi salute or, you know, making fun of, of you know, physically challenged people was because he was trying to get people to stop screaming and notice what was happening. It wasn't the most mature thing to do. It wasn't the best way to go about it. But he was so frustrated about nobody caring that they were there playing their music. They just wanted to see their faces and scream at them for 23 minutes. Right. And no wonder they stopped touring after two years, you know, two years after this book was written. This was the good tour. This was the easy tour. This was before Manila. This was before burning the Bigger than Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. This was the good tour. (laughs) This is, yeah, this is the optimal outcome, but still it was just excruciating. And it's funny, as I was reading it, I just thought about A Hard Day's Night. You know, this is basically the screenplay to A Hard Day's Night. It's, you know, the famous line from The Grandfather, you know, a, a car in a room and a plane a train in a room, room and a boat in a room and a room in a room in a room. Yeah, <laughs> it was basically that. And it's, and you say claustrophobic, absolutely. It's like they did not get to, you know, go out. They could not go out by themselves, obviously. Um, there's one part, you know, George was sick, obviously, before Ed Sullivan. And uh, John, Paul, and Ringo went to Central Park for a photo call. And all I could think about, and we've all seen those photos. And, you know, I went back and looked at some after I read the part. Because all I can think of is, God, they must be so happy to be outside in fresh air. Because that was such a such a rarity at that point. Given the, the way that the fans were so keyed into where they were, even before people said anything i'm surprised they were even able to get that photo shoot without somebody disrupting the shoot yeah they got very lucky on that one when paul and george were in paris i think george said that paul had perfected his disguise for being able to go out alone so well that george didn't know who he was yeah i remember reading that i would have liked to see that disguise because his disguise in a hard day's night was not great no definitely not i mean you know, going back to our, I believe, second episode, perchance, where we talked to Beatles hairdresser Leslie Cavendish, you know, that was one of the things that Paul really wanted later on when Leslie started cutting his hair because he wanted to go on vacation with Jane Asher, I think in 60, late 66. And Leslie was accused of making Paul into a skinhead because he cut his hair very short to disguise him. And oh even God. then... You know, I mean, and to Leslie and Paul's credit, uh, he sort of did have a nice vacation where he didn't really get recognized at all. But I don't know. I, could, I, I can look at pictures of him after that haircut and be like, yeah, that's Paul McCartney. So I would love to see that that Paris disguise, too. You know, another thing about the pressure that was interesting is that they had to keep up this turning it up to 11 level of enthusiasm of work constantly. Um, there was one part where... The second that there was any slippage in the number of fans that were outside their house, or if another group, they talked about the Dave Clark Five at one point, the Dave Clark Five put out a single and the headline the next day was Tottenham Sound has crushed the Beatles. One thing I love, and we're going to have to do an episode or something about this, because the rivalry between the Beatles and the Dave Clark Five is so interesting, because... Today, we don't even think of them on the same level at all, period. But Paul, in particular, was very threatened by the Dave Clark Five. And I actually have in my collection a teen mag from, I think, at 65, that it's just called Beatles versus the Dave Clark Five. And it was this one teen mag that was just basically pitting the two against each other. And so, you know, this was so early on in their career, I could see maybe if Paul or the band had seen that headline 
they would have been like, F the Dave Clark Five. Like, we hate them now. And maybe yeah. this is where it started. Possibly. Maybe it was an external thing. Because if reporters were saying that, then Paul had a reason to worry. Because somebody right. else, you know, the people who had bolstered them so much now are, like, turning their attention elsewhere. They actually weren't that popular in, in Paris when they went. People didn't really know who they were yet. And so that got them and the people around them scared. And so they just kept going and going and going. I mean, the pace at which they had to work, that frantic, frenzied pace, the, the fact that these people survived is amazing, like without becoming insane. Just nonstop. And another interesting thing that kind of related to this was just the way that they disseminated the Beatles. Like there was one example where they did this open-ended interview where they would provide um, their responses to questions that would be, you know, basically a script. So a DJ would read the script and then right. they'd play the Beatles record with the answers on it. So it would sound like the Beatles were in the studio with, you know, that the local uh, radio station, you know, in the middle of anywhere, which is really, it's really interesting if you think about the way you know, we can see and watch almost anything within a split second of it being broadcast, but they had to think of a lot of different ways to give that personal touch that they really wanted to places where they just couldn't get to. Right. That was very on the cusp of fan engagement, you know, which is what we would think of today with social media. Um, definitely, this is bringing the Beatles into those small towns and those small town radio stations. And it just made them even more popular. And in every city, they had to do the same rigmarole with the, you know, getting into a, an emergency truck and then getting into a taxi cab and then moving out to a limo in the middle of the street and finally going under a tunnel and getting into a private hotel room or whatever they had to do every single time they needed to leave their hotel. Right. I think there were decoy fire trucks involved at some point. In yeah. The yeah. And then each Beatle was in a different cab that was unmarked. And then eventually they got together some midpoint. It was sounded crazy. Very much like the opening scene of Hard Day's Night in Marlebone Station, you know, where they each get into a car and then they all jump into another car impressive too that they could do that level of coordination without cell phones like i feel like i couldn't meet a yeah, friend for coffee that's without a super good point you know? i mean that's incredible so kudos to whoever was was doing these these Very logistics good, good timing good yeah good logistics one thing that um i wanted to point out because i sort of had to stop the whole time i was reading the book um is because it picks up in fall of 63 one thing obviously that happened here in the U.S. and was a major catalyst, I think, for what happened with Beatlemania was obviously on November 22nd, 1963, JFK was assassinated, um, which really, really obviously devastated the entire country. It was just a really bleak time. Um, and uh, there's actually a book about how that directly led to Beatlemania or fed into it um, as the sort of you know, salve for the country when the Beatles came. It was such a joyful thing that sort of rescued Americans from the pallor of the presidential assassination. The book is by Al Sussman. Check it out. It's very, very good. It goes into it in detail. But I was waiting the entire time. I was, okay, well, this, is, this book was written in 63, 64. Surely Michael Braun, being an American too, is going to bring it up early on. And he did, he mentions it at the very end, which I think is super interesting. He finally brings up the JFK assassination um, in a very casual way. But in a way, I think at the time would have been very provocatively um, thoughtful for the reader who would have had that little tidbit to make sense of it all and been like, okay, yeah, I see this now. I see this in a different way. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I think a lot of it is probably the difference between coming at this book then and coming at this book now. Because the years gave a lot of people the chance to look at the events with a larger lens and see how maybe one fed into the other. But maybe in that time, I mean, while that happened, he was in England with the Beatles. And, you know, his perspective was very much, I'm here with them and I'm going to go over there with them in February. So in whatever way that the assassination undoubtedly affected him personally, he may have been too close to it to actually see what Americans were going through and how it might have translated into this this mass hysteria in February of the following year. That's true. And, you know, coming come to think of it, it's not really that obvious of a parallel. You know, not everybody draws that parallel, even today. So then, you know, you have the president of the U.S., arguably the most powerful man in the world, and this teen group, Teen Sensations, the Beatles. You know, I could see how that wouldn't exactly kind of match up. But of course, today, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight and it sort of is a little bit more obvious to say, oh, yeah, I could see how that would have impacted that other situation. For sure. There there had to have been some element of, you know, national catharsis that the Beatles brought. Mm -hmm. Maybe from Michael Braun's perspective, though, he's just seeing the buildup of English Beatlemania kind of rolling into a bigger and bigger snowball and coming over here. That's likely. I don't think that that's a complete view, but it's hard to have a complete view when you're on the ground. That's a good point. So actually, the fact that he mentioned it at all was probably pretty prescient. Yeah, I think you're right on that point. He was a very interesting writer. I'd be interested in seeing what else, you know, reading other things that he's written. Interesting guy all the way around. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) for sure. Interesting guy. (laughs) So... That's probably a good place to to wrap up our general observations. Um, some final thoughts about the book. John Lennon said that this book portrayed the Beatles as they really were, which was bastards. Do you think <laughs> that this book showed the Beatles as the bastards that John Lennon's comment promised? Yes or uh, no? Yes or no? I don't think so. I mean, I think it may have shown them as their more authentic selves. I don't know if I would go so far as bastards. Yeah, there's a lot of off-color things about, you know, gay people and disabled people. And, and you know, you can chalk however much of that up to the times as you want to, or you can blame them for it as much as you want to. But I don't think that, I don't know, I don't think they were major bastards, no. I don't think so either. And maybe that's because we know most of this stuff about them now. You know, enough of it has come out. You know, we've seen... We've heard way worse stuff about them, actually. Actually, about three weeks ago, we heard way (laughs) more... um, Way more than we ever needed to know. Yeah, yeah. Way more vulgarity in in that that Paul McCartney stories than uh, this one right here. Right. Um, I think the only only thing that I think... It didn't shock me because for sure I've heard this before, but, you know, Paul taking a Playboy buddy home the night before the first Ed Sullivan show, that was like, ew. Yeah. I guess so. The way Braun tells it, though, it's so ambiguous. Um, I mean, obviously, it's like, oh, oh, did Paul take a Playboy Bunny home from the club? Oh, they probably just like sat around and read the Bible, right? Mm. No, obviously. <laughs> but the way he tells it is very tactful. You know, and maybe that's, I don't know if that's the first time in print, but certainly, you know, it indicates that Paul cheated on Jane, which no shit. Like, they all cheated on their, yep. their women. Um But yeah, I mean, I guess for the times, that would have been a little bit scandalous. I guess if John Lennon saw this 
and he saw it in comparison to many of the other sanitized accounts that were out there at that time, at the time that he saw it, he saw what he remembered to be the real experiences. But I don't see it as particularly shocking because we already knew that these sides to them existed. But what it was was very interesting to be with that part of them for for the, the length of time that it takes to read the book. So, you know, it was a more intense experience of that. I agree. I think, you know, this book, Mark Lewis Nance called it the best book written about the Beatles. And I think I would agree to a certain extent just because it is a contemporary account and it doesn't have the rose-colored glasses that you get in so many, I would say in 99% of other Beatles books at some point. Um or, you know, I would take that a step further. I would say it doesn't have the hyperbole either, because I think some Beatles books want to shock you. And Mark Lewison, obviously, hashtag Lewison is God, mm-hmm. um, doesn't. You know, his tune-in is very even-handed. It's very factual. It's very interesting. But, you know, Love Me Do doesn't attempt to be salacious. It doesn't attempt to be anything other than what it is, which is like a play-by-play account of what was happening at that time with these people. And that's really virtuous, uh, you know, when you consider other Beatles books. Yeah. And I think that's the real the real charm of it, really. Yeah. And I think it's one of the most interesting Beatles books because the author really had nothing, nothing personal to gain about it. You know, it's not like when Peter Brown writes a Beatles book, you know, he has a narrative he wants to get out there. That's a personal selfish reasoning you know behind it this guy is a reporter this guy is writing what he sees he's american so you know he has a more outsider's perspective of what he's seeing i don't think he feels any need to protect any of his subjects he's just he's just there flying the wall and we get to see this this really engaging and fun and unique account of what it really felt like to be there and fun yeah, yeah but also actually kind of scary and claustrophobic too so we got to see all sides of it it was really multifaceted right and i think the fact too that we don't really know michael braun is not a known name you know in the beatles writer canon like as opposed to mark lewison for example and i'm just looking here um inside the front cover of the book and has a mini bio of michael braun And the last statement, which I would imagine Braun wrote himself, says, Michael Braun makes no claim to be an anthropologist, a sociologist, or a musicologist. He considers this book to be simply an observer's report on a phenomenon as it evolved. So that tells you everything about sort of his approach writing this, which is just clinically as a reporter. Which is great. And it's also great that he put in pieces from fans, sociologists, anthropologists, and musicologists as little vignettes in between. So yeah, we do have that real-time context from the people that perhaps readers are expecting him to be. It's great. It's invaluable, I would say, this text. If you have not read this book, read this book. It will enhance your Beatles knowledge, I think, in a way that many, many other books cannot do. It's a good sort of even-handed balancing act if you're reading other Beatles books, you know, like Peter Brown's, for example, since we just mentioned that. (laughs) And if you like the early years like I do, I'm fascinated by the way it all came together and how young they were and all the people around them and the things that had to go just so to make this phenomenon happen. If you're interested in the inner workings of that, this is not going to give you any answers to why, because I don't think there is an answer to why, but it will certainly give you a good insight on how and what. 100%. This is an amazing book. I'm so glad we chose it for our first one. Yeah, me too. So if you're out there and you've read this, please contact us. Let us know what you think anywhere, social media, email us, 
anything. We want to know what you thought of it. And we want to know your thoughts. Did you agree with us? What insights did we miss? Please tell us. Please let us know. Even if you're listening to this in 2020 or beyond, because that's not very far away, uh, (laughs) email us, bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Let's talk about this uh, forever. We're always happy to talk about the Beatles. 24-8. We'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming. We're going to be talking about John Lennon with Drew Kessler. Really excited about that. And we'll also announce our next Beatles book club. Yes, and the winner of the Egypt Station Metro card. So if you want to be in the running for that, put in a review this week. Woohoo, yeah. Cool stuff. And uh, we'll see you next time on Because the Beatles. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.